Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit IntelligenceSquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Sam Harris on the science of good and evil. This event took place on the 11th of April 2011 at Kensington Town Hall in London. Ladies and gentlemen, terrific to see you all here today in such numbers. Who would have thought that uh, on the question of moral philosophy we could get a packed hall just like that? Fantastic. And we're very, very pleased to welcome Sam Harris, who's just flown in from America, and Giles Fraser. I want to remind you that uh, one of the key aspects of Intelligence Squared debate generally, and this debate in particular, is the scope to change your mind and to be open to evidence. It's true of both Sam and Giles that they have both, at some stage in their lives, changed their mind from what you would have perhaps expected them to be. That's to say, Sam, you may not know this, but was a Buddhist and Hindu meditator at one stage, not perhaps what you would expect now, although I'm sure he will be able to trace a linear development between his present position and those. Giles was a left-wing socialist who, on the basis of evidence that he saw, made some peace with the marketplace. Um, So... So it's clear that they are capable of uh, changing their minds, and I'd be quite interested to see on a quick show of hands before we begin this interesting discussion today um, what your position is. Sam Harris's book, I'm just leaving aside the God question for the moment, but is revolutionary in the philosophical sense that it's a great repudiation of David Hume and his idea that you can make statements about fact on the one side and you can make statements about value on the other, but there is no correspondence between them. And um, that is what one of the positions that Sam is keen to assault. Just on a show of hands, who would still consider themselves a Humean here and think that when you talk about values, this has nothing to do with science and facts? Can we have a show of hands on that? All my work is done. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's probably time to go home. Well, we'll see. We'll, now, let me just explain to you very quickly how, how, how tonight's going to work. Sam is going to talk for about 20 to 25 minutes. Then Giles is going to give a brief rejoinder, both from the podium. Then they're going to um, talk together with uh, Giles interrogating Sam about some of his views and him responding. We trust that not too much agreement will prevail between them. <laughs> And then we're going to throw it open to you, and um, and we'll take your questions, and you can put them to either or both of the speakers. So uh, could you now please give a big hand to Sam, who's going to kick off? Thank you all for coming. I I trust you can hear me. Um, 
Well, it's an honor to be here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan, actually, of Intelligence Squared, and, and it's an honor to, to get a chance to speak to you in this context. Uh, and as um, we heard, uh, Giles and I are going to be uh, speaking together um, uh, afterwards. And uh, you may know he, he wrote a quite blistering review of, of my book in The Guardian the other day, uh, where he accused me of, among other things, breathtaking hubris. Uh, now, strangely, I love this review, Giles, uh, although it now occurs to me that this could be a symptom of my breathtaking hubris. <laughs> uh, uh, or jet lag, which I'm, I'm certainly suffering. But I, I, I want to encourage you, Giles, to not pull your punches in our discussion. And likewise, in the Q&A afterwards, if any of you feel that you have the, the knockdown argument against what I've said tonight, Please don't leave the room just muttering it to yourself. Just get to the mic and, and let me hear it, because I, I really don't want to be wrong any longer than I need to be. Uh, so now, as many of you know, I've spent the last few years publicly criticizing religion. And what you encounter when you do that are all the reasons why people think criticizing religion is a terrible thing to do. Uh, and it turns out there are not 100 reasons to think this. There are really just three. Either you think that, that one or another religion is true, or you think religion in general is useful, or you think atheism is, is corrupting of morals or uh, unpleasant uh, and a sign of intolerance, etc. And the interesting thing is that pe people real, rarely defend the truth of religion. Even, even fundamentalists tend not to come forward with evidence for miracles or, or the confirmation of prophecy, that what everyone tends to lead with is this concern about the usefulness of religion and, and the failure of, of uh, non-belief to provide the same utility. And the utility that everyone is worried about is this notion of, of a, a moral framework, that re religion, it's imagined, is the, the only context in which we can put forward a universal framework about morality. Uh, and this is what keeps religion, incidentally, in good standing among uh, even people who don't subscribe. Many secular people who are unwilling to criticize religion are unwilling to do it based on uh, all the good it, it seems to do for, um, uh, in, the, in the domain of human values. Uh, now, people of faith are generally concerned that unless we have a, a robust sense of moral truth, unless we really feel that words like right and wrong and good and evil mean something, then humanity will just lose its way. And, and I actually I share that concern. Uh, I'm worried about the, the, a, a postmodern erosion of, of moral courage and moral clarity. And I'll, I'll tell you the moment where this problem was first seared onto my brain. I was at a, a, an academic conference uh, speaking, as I'll, I'll speak to you tonight, about the connection, as, as I see it, between well-being, human well-being, and morality. Uh, and I said, uh, as an example of a, um, a worldview that we can clearly recognize as being less than truly moral, I, I cited the, the sadism and, and misogyny of the Taliban. Uh, now, it turns out to, to, to denigrate the Taliban at a scientific meeting is actually to, to court controversy. Uh, and afterwards, an, another invited speaker came up to me and said, how could you ever say that from the point of view of science, we'll be able to say that, that 
the forced veiling of women is wrong, that forcing women to live in burqas is wrong. And I said, well, because the moment you recognize that right and wrong relate to questions of human flourishing, uh, it becomes obvious that, that uh, forcing half the population to live in cloth bags and beating them or killing them when they try to get out is not a good strategy for, for maximizing human flourishing and is therefore not good. Uh, and she said, but that's only your opinion. And I said, okay, well, let's make it simpler. Let's say we found a culture that was ritually blinding every third child, literally removing out the eyeballs of children. Would you then agree that we had found a culture that was not perfectly maximizing human well-being? And she said it would depend on why they were doing it. So after my eyebrows returned from the back of my head... Uh, I said, well, let's say they're doing it for religious reasons. Let's say they have a scripture which says every third should walk in darkness or some such nonsense. And she said, then you could never say that they were wrong. Now, you should know, I was talking to a, a, uh, a woman, uh, which makes it even more shocking to me, actually, but a woman who has a deep background in science and philosophy. She, she has since been appointed to the President's Council for Bioethics in the United States. She's one of 13 people advising President Obama on all of the ethical implications of progress in medicine and, and related science and technology. Uh, and she had just delivered a, a perfectly lucid lecture on the, the ethical implications of progress in neuroscience. She was especially concerned that we could be using fMRI-based lie detection on captured terrorists, and she, she viewed this as a really unconscionable violation of their cognitive liberty. So on the one hand, her, her moral scruples were so finely tuned as to recoil from the, the slightest perceived misstep in our war on terror, and yet she was quite willing to forgive any culture that would remove the eyeballs of children in its religious rituals, and she was actually, to, more relevantly, rather terrifyingly detached from the very real suffering of, of millions of women in Afghanistan at this moment. So I see this double standard as a problem. And strangely, it, this is precisely the sort of failure of common sense and, and basic moral wisdom that, that religious people worry about. Uh, I, just, I, I hope it's clear to you by the end of this hour that, that uh, belief in God is not the solution to this problem. Uh, and it is, in my view, another source of moral blindness. So how do we find ourselves in this situation? How do we find ourselves with, with religious dogmatists and the, the majority of secular uh, intellectuals agreeing about the limits of science? Uh, well, it is widely believed that we have these, these two quantities in this universe. We have facts on the one hand, and clearly science is the domain in which we can talk most rigorously about those. And then we have values on the other, and it's widely believed science uh, can say nothing about these. Uh, now, of course, everyone thinks science can help us get what we value, uh, but science can never tell us what we ought to value. The science can, can never weigh in on the most important questions in human life, like you know, what constitutes a good life, or how should we raise our children. Uh, it's thought... And this, this, I think, is based on a, a, a misconstrual of the boundaries of science. It's thought that science, from the point of view of science, we look out at the universe and we just see patterns of events. We just see one thing following the next. And there's no corner of the universe 
that declares certain of its events to be right or wrong or good or evil, except for ourselves. Our minds, like our own, make these declarations. We determine certain events to be better than others. But it seems that we're merely foisting our own preferences and desires and moral judgments onto a, a, a reality that, that is intrinsically value-free. And where do our notions of, of right and wrong and good and evil come from? They, they clearly are the product of evolution. They're the product of apish urges and social emotions that have been drummed into us over millions of years and then modulated by culture. So you take something like sexual jealousy, for instance. Uh, this is something that has clearly been bred into us over time. Uh, our, our ancestors seem to have been highly covetous of one another, despite the fact that everyone was covered with hair. And, and, and now we have institutions like the institution of marriage that seem to, to um, enshrine this attitude. And so therefore, many people think that, that a statement like, it's wrong to cheat on your spouse, can't, it can't really be true from the point of view of science. This is just a, a mere summation of these biological and cultural contingencies. Um, it's just conventionally wrong. This is kind of an improvisation we do on the back of biology. And uh, this is where religious people begin to get a little queasy, as I think they should. Uh, but being religious, coming from these, these ancient uh, traditions, most see no alternative but to insert, if they're living in the West, the God of Abraham, an Iron Age God of war, into the clockwork as, as an invisible arbiter of moral truth. Uh, so it's wrong to cheat on your spouse because Yahweh deems that it is so, which is rather odd because in other moods he's, rather, he's fond of human sacrifice and slavery and genocide. So I'm, I'm now going to argue that this, this split between facts and values is an illusion. Uh, I think moral values are a certain kind of fact. They're facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. They're facts about the, the, the kinds of experiences this, this universe allows for. Now, in, in claiming that values reduce to the well-being of conscious creatures, I've introduced two concepts, consciousness and well-being. Let's start with consciousness. This is not an arbitrary starting point. Just imagine a universe devoid of consciousness. Imagine a universe de devoid of the possibility of consciousness, a universe, let's say, entirely of rocks. Okay, there's no, clearly no happiness or suffering in this universe. There's no right or wrong. This is a value-free space. For, for changes in the universe to matter, they have to matter, at least potentially, to some conscious system. Okay, so I take that to be axiomatic, and I... I, I can't really see how that could be controversial. Uh, what about well-being? This link between values and the well-being of conscious creatures may seem controversial, but I, I, I'm going to argue that it shouldn't. Here's the, the, the only assumption you need to accept. Imagine a universe where every conscious creature suffers as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. Yeah, I call this the worst possible misery for everyone. Okay, the worst possible misery for everyone is bad. If the word bad is going to mean anything, surely it applies here. Now, if you think the worst possible misery for everyone isn't bad, or that it might have a silver lining, or there might be something worse, I don't know what you're talking about. 
And, and what is more, I'm reasonably sure you don't know what you're talking about either. <laughs> so I, I'm saying that the, the minimum standard of moral goodness is to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. And the moment you admit this, the moment you admit that the, that the worst possible misery for everyone is the worst case, you must admit that all other possible states of the universe are better. Okay, and then we have a continuum that opens up with the worst possible misery for everyone over here and all other constellations of experiences out here. And because the experience of conscious creatures depends in some way on the laws of nature, then there will be right and wrong answers about how to move, regarding how to move along this continuum. It'll be possible to think you're avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone and to fail, to be wrong about it. So here's my argument for, for moral, locating moral truth in the context of science. Questions of right and wrong and good and evil depend upon minds. They depend upon the, the possibility of experience. Minds are natural phenomena. They depend upon the laws of nature in some way. Morality and human values, therefore, can be understood through science because in talking about these things, we are of necessity talking about all the facts that determine the well-being of conscious creatures. In our case, we're talking about genetics and neurobiology and psychology and sociology and economics. Now, I view this space of all possible experience as a kind of moral landscape where the peaks correspond to the heights of well-being and the val valleys correspond to the lowest depths of suffering. And there are a few things to notice about this. It, it's, it's quite possible that there are many peaks. There could be multiple maxima uh, in, in um, human experience, say. There may be many different uh, but morally equivalent ways for human beings to thrive in this world. But there will be many more ways not to thrive. There will be many more ways to not be on a peak. It's clearly, there are clearly more ways to suffer unnecessarily, unnecessarily in this world than to be sublimely happy. Now, the Taliban are still my favorite example of a, of a community that is struggling mightily to build a society that's obviously less good than, than many others on offer. Uh, the literacy rate for women in Afghanistan is 12%, and their life expectancy is 44 years. Uh, it, they have, Afghanistan has nearly the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality in the world, and nearly the highest fertility. So it's one of the best places on earth to watch women and infants die. And their GDP is lower than the world average was in the year 1820. Now, it seems to me patently obvious that the, the, the optimal response to this dire situation, which is to say the most moral response, is not to throw battery acid in the face of little girls for the crime of learning to read. Now, this is obviously common sense to us, unless you happen to be a bioethicist on the President's Council at this moment. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's more than that. These are, these, this, is a, this is a tacit claim about biology and psychology and sociology and economics. It is not unscientific to say that the Taliban are wrong about morality. In fact, we have to say this the moment we admit we know anything at all about human well-being. In fact, the moment we admit that we will know anything at all about human well-being, this space of, of, of truth claims opens up. Now, some people with a little philosophical training may be tempted to wonder, well, 
What if a father wants to throw battery acid in his daughter's face? Who who are you to say that he's not as moral as we are? And what what if he has an alternate conception of well-being that has to be dignified with the same kind of legitimacy as our own? Uh, Or who's to say we should care about little girls in the first place? Maybe we just don't need to care about little girls. This is the kind of email I get, incidentally. Uh, Now, moral skeptics of this kind rather often cite Hume's uh, distinction between uh, facts and values, and especially this, this notion that you can't derive an ought from an is, the idea that science can only describe the way the world is, and there's no description of the way the world is that can tell us how the world ought to be. Now, I happen to think this ought-is business is a, it's just a trick of language. Um, uh, Wittgenstein once said that, that philosophy is a, a battle against the bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. And many people are, are mightily bewitched by words like ought and should and moral duty. Uh, and on my view, to ask whether we ought to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone is nonsensical. Okay, if we ought to do anything, if we should do anything, if we have a moral duty to do anything in this universe, it's to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. Okay, there's, there's no notion of ought that reaches deeper than the imperative of avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone. Okay, we, 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 can't, we can't say, well, I would have avoided the worst possible misery for everyone, but I had different priorities. Okay, there's no space for those priorities. Or so I would argue. Now, many people imagine on Hume's account that science is bound to merely be descriptive, and one, one person's values can, can only be opposed by another person's values, and all such values are on a par. Okay, but this isn't true. There, there are many ways for my values to be wrong. I mean, they can be wrong with respect to deeper values that I hold, or, or would hold if I were a deeper person. My, my, it's quite possible for me to value things that will cause me to be miserable, and those I love to be miserable in this world. Okay, or, or will close the door to certain experiences that I would want if I were only intelligent or knowledgeable enough to want them. It's clearly possible for a person, or really all of us, to not know what we're missing in life. So so things can be right or wrong or good or evil, irrespective of a a person's current values. Now, some of you might worry that this this notion of well-being I'm using is a little too uh, elastic and uh, hasn't been tied down with any precision. Uh, how can a loose concept like this be the, the cash value of any uh, objective understanding of human values? Well, consider by analogy the notion of physical health. If physical health is a loose concept. It is, it is very difficult to define. Uh, it used to be that to be healthy, you could expect to live to the ripe old age of 40. Uh, we, our lifespan, our life expectancy has doubled in the last 150 years. What, what does health even mean to us? Well, it has something to do with not always vomiting, okay, not running a fever, not being in excruciating pain. But it is, it is genuinely difficult to, to define. And we can ask questions about health that may have no clear answer. Okay, how, how fast should a healthy person be able to run? Okay, that, that might not have a clear answer. That, that depends upon context. Um, what's more important, strength or flexibility? Well, there there are trade-offs between the two. It depends upon context. And yet, 
all of this, all of those trade-offs clearly are anchored to a discussion about human biology. This, these, the fact that there are trade-offs here in gray areas and ill-posed questions does not make the concept of health vacuous or merely subjective or purely the product of culture. And notice that no one is ever tempted to attack the, the philosophical foundations of medicine with worries like, well, who are you to say that, that not always vomiting is healthy? What if you meet a person who wants to vomit and, in fact, wants to vomit until he dies? Okay, how are you going to convince him that he's not as healthy as you are? The, the, the very notion of health has certain values built into it. Okay, this does not make the field of medicine unscientific. And in talking about morality and human values, I actually think we are talking about mental health and the health of societies. So I think the, the analogy does run rather deep. But the truth is even deeper than that, that, that science has always been in the values business. You simply cannot speak about facts without embracing certain values. It's not that you can't get an ought from an is. You can't get an is without certain oughts. Uh, I mean, consider the, the simplest statement of scientific fact. Water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. Okay, this is as value-free an utterance as human beings ever make. But what do we do when someone doubts the truth of this utterance? Okay, all we can do is appeal to scientific values. Okay, we must appeal to the value of understanding the world. We must appeal to the value of evidence, in this case, nearly 200 years of, of experimental evidence in chemistry. We must appeal to, to logical consistency. Much of what we presuppose to be true about the world depends upon the validity of, of our belief about the structure of water. What can we say to a person who doesn't share these values? What if we meet someone who says, well, listen, that, that's just not how I choose to think about water. Someone could say, I'm a biblical chemist, and I read in Genesis 1 that God created water before he created light. So that, I take that to mean that he created water before he created the stars, so there would have been no stars to fuse hydrogen and helium into heavier elements like oxygen. And so there'd be no oxygen to put in the water. Or God created special oxygen. But I don't think he would do that because that would be biblically inelegant. What can we do in such a conversation? All we can do is appeal to values, and scientific values. And if the person doesn't share those values, the conversation is over. If someone doesn't value evidence... What evidence are you going to put forward to show that they should value it? If someone doesn't value logic, what logical argument are you going to make that will prove the value of logic? Okay. I think this split between facts and values just should look strange to you on its face. What are we really saying when we say that science can't be applied to questions of right and wrong and good and evil? We're saying that when we make every effort to get our personal biases out of the way, when we become most reliant on clear reasoning and honest observation, when intellectual honesty is at its zenith, well, then those efforts have no application whatsoever to the most important questions in human life. That's precisely the mood you cannot be in to answer the most important questions in human life. Okay, it would be very strange if that were so. Now, thinking about moral truth in the context of science only poses a problem for you if you imagine that, that a science of morality must be absolutely self-justifying 
in a way that no branch of science can be. Every science must presuppose certain core values. That does not render science unscientific. unscientific. And if science is unscientific, what is scientific? A science of morality predicated on the value of well-being would be on no weaker footing than, than medicine predicated on the value of health, or indeed any other branch of science predicated on the value of certain axiomatic assumptions. And just as it's possible to be cognitively closed to certain truths about the physical universe, it's possible to be closed or to harbor value judgments that close you to certain possibilities of human experience. It's possible to value the wrong things. If you think that you prefer to be neurotic and in pain and alienated from all of humanity and incapable of creative work, if you think that you would rather live in a society where millions of people suffer needlessly, there is something wrong with you. Okay. Objectively wrong? Yes. Okay. In that your brain, the state of your brain prevents you from wanting or even knowing about certain higher states of consciousness. Higher with respect to what? Higher as in being further from the lowest possible state of consciousness, the worst possible misery for everyone. Is the worst possible misery for everyone really bad? Okay, again, I submit to you that we have hit philosophical bedrock with the shovel of a stupid question. <clears throat> now, of course, there are, there are many good questions that people want to ask that uh, relate to how a science of morality could work in, in, in practice. How do, how do you balance one person's well-being against the well-being of society? Okay. What do we do when certain values are in opposition to one another, certain obvious goods like freedom of speech versus the right to privacy, say? Uh, how can we evaluate the consequences of certain actions? Because the consequences seem to go on forever. So ask yourself, this recent tragedy uh, in Japan with, with the, the nuclear reactor, was that good or bad? Well, it certainly seems bad, but what if this causes us to be so much more scrupulous with nuclear materials than we would otherwise have been, we wind up saving millions and millions of lives down the line, a century hence. It, these, are, these, are all, these are good questions, okay, and we cannot help but grapple with these, with these questions in our efforts to build a viable global civilization based on shared values. But none of these are a retort to the, the case for moral truth that I'm making. Okay, and in every domain that truth exists, there are an infinite number of questions that we just can't answer. Okay, so my favorite at the moment is, how many birds are in flight over the surface of the Earth at this instant? It is a well-posed question. We don't know. We will never know. And in fact, it just changed. Okay, there's, there's, there is no scientific effort that could bring that data within reach. And yet, we know there's a simple answer. It's, it's an integer. It's also true that certain questions about morality could be ill-posed, like certain questions about health. Uh, and they may, therefore, may have no determinate answer. This is, does not mean that many or most questions in the moral sphere uh, have no answer. Now, so in closing, I just want to remind you why religion can't be the true 
moral wealth of the world. Uh, first, it's just the fact that our scriptures were written by people who, by, by virtue of their appearance in history, knew less about almost everything of substance that we care about. I mean, they, 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 they knew less about science. They knew less about what is now basic common sense. I mean, they, they knew nothing about the origin of life on this planet, the mind's relationship to the brain, the, the, the causes for illness. I mean, people were dying all around them, and unless they saw them get stabbed with a spear, they had no idea why. I mean, this is, this, we are in a fundamentally different world. Uh, there's nothing in Scripture about electricity or DNA or computation or viruses, or, and the list is long. And in moral terms, with few notable exceptions, most of these people were no wiser than your average Afghan warlord is today. Most had absolutely no notion, for instance, that slavery was unethical. I mean, Jesus and his apostles couldn't spell out that slavery was unethical. They couldn't really grasp that owning people and treating them like farm equipment was somehow problematic. So I want to suggest to you that there's no such thing, just, just as there is no such thing as Christian physics, though the Christians did invent physics, and no such thing as Muslim algebra, though the Muslims also invented algebra, there can be no such thing as Christian or Muslim morality. All we have is human conversation in, in which to frame the possibilities of human experience. And we, we can either have a conversation that's located in the first century, if you're a Christian, or the seventh century, if you're a Muslim, or in the 21st century with all of our intellectual tools at our disposal. And what remains for us to discover are simply the facts that relate to the possibility of, of uh, human flourishing in every domain of knowledge. We have to find some way to engineer a circumstance in which most of us, most of the time, lead deeply fulfilling lives. And it seems to me that the only tool we need for this job is open and honest inquiry. And faith, if it is ever right about anything in this sphere, is right by accident. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Sam. Uh, Giles Fraser will now uh, give a talk for five minutes or so, pondering on what he's just heard. Poor old David Hume. Who would have guessed it? Uh, how long ago would it have been? We do live in a topsy-turvy universe. How long ago would it have been where David Hume would have inspired generations of, of uh, atheists and secularists? And now he seems so unpopular Actually, I'm sort of with you on the fact-value distinction, quite a, quite a bit of it, and uh, I'm not going to have a go at you about that. Um, what I thought I'd do in this topsy-turvy um, world that we're in is have a go at you, Sam, for being too religious, um, for not having learnt enough uh, of the values of suspicion about religion. And I think you're, religion, you're too religious in two, two respects. I, I had um, Sam's book, which I enjoyed a great deal, Side of My Bed, at the same time I suppose all of us have piles of books. And I had it at the, at, but at the same time as this fantastic book by Tony Judd called Ill Fares the Land. I don't know if 
People have read it out at the moment. And it's a great creed occur for the renewal of, of social democracy. And one of the uh, things that he's particularly keen on is that um, as a suspicion of isms is that, uh, is that the 20th century should teach us that um, communism and neoliberalism and the idea that somehow you're being cheered, they're, they're being cheered on by the universe is a very dangerous phenomenon. At the back of his book, it says this. If we have learned nothing else from the 20th century, we should at least have grasped that the more perfect the answer, the more terrifying its consequences. The more perfect the answer, the more terrifying its consequences. My problem with Sam's book is not the science. It's when the science becomes or feels like it's turned into some sort of ism, that it's become a perfect answer, that it's become an answer that's overstepped what science may be and wants to give us a complete explanation of the world. It's that complete and totalizing explanation of the world, which is one of the reasons that religion itself has been so wicked in the past. One of the things that I was going to say up here is that one of the advantages of being a Christian uh, and coming from a tradition where you have done so many bad things where there is so much blood on your hands that you develop a self-critical vigilance about one's own capacity for uh, intellectually supporting terrible things. Now, that self-critical vigilance is something that I don't find in your book, Sam, that idea of, of being aware that those big explanations, those explanations that are held with huge certainty that really brook no dissent, those sort of explanations are scary and dangerous. And so I said about Sam's book that really I'm more scared of Sam's book than it is that I disagree with it. And one little bit in the book, in a footnote, which I'd like to draw out just to show you why I'm scared of it. You see, the thing is, the other reason that I think uh, Sam hasn't quite got the full extent of atheism is that I've got this suspicion that if there was proof that God existed, and let's say God was a bastard, that Sam would believe, believe that there was such a thing as God. There is a God. I would be a believer. Let me say, if God exists and he's a bastard, I am not a believer. I am atheist, even, in, even if there is good evidence that that super being exists. I would not sacrifice. I would not bow down. But Sam says something, well, almost that he would. Now, I think you know what I'm going to talk about. I'm talking about the Nozick example here. And that in the footnotes, there's this very interesting uh, discussion of, of Nozick. And I'm just going to read to you a bit about uh, that Sam writes. Nozick asks if it would be ethical for our species to be sacrificed for the unimaginably vast happiness of some super beings. Super beings, I'm going to read as another way of talking about God. Would it be ethical for our species to be sacrificed to the unimaginably vast happiness of some super beings? Provided that we take time to really imagine the details, which is not easy, I think the answer is clearly yes. 
Now, that's what worries me about this. What worries me about this sort of philosophy is that Sam is saying that if there was some super being and that our happiness and and that super being's happiness was made great by our sacrifice, then that's what should happen. I say no to all of that. I don't think Sam has learnt properly the lessons of atheism, that there needs to be greater self-critical vigilance, why religion is wrong. I would not bow down to this super being, even if he or she existed. Sam, I don't think you're a good enough atheist. Okay, well, thank you very much to both our speakers. We're now, as I say, going to get them to quiz each other for the next few minutes and ask each other questions about their respective positions. And then we're going to throw it open to you lot. Just before, Giles, you asked a question, can I ask you a question, Sam? Sure. I'm wondering, should I respond to my apparent uh, love of human sacrifice? (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, I think yeah. you should probably go for the sacrifice okay. first. I think okay. That's a good idea. Uh, well, that, that footnote, there's a reason why that's in an end note, uh, and it's not just to hide it from Giles. Uh, <laughs> it's that is just me following the, the philosophical implications of my view to the extreme. And this, is, this example from uh, Nozick is, is usually considered as a kind of reductio ad absurdum of the view that it's all about well-being or, or pleasant experience under any construal. Um, but what I maintain is that I'm certainly not saying that we would all enthusiastically offer ourselves to these beings, um, and nor am I even slightly suggesting that there's any reason to believe that such beings exist. Uh, but I'm just, uh, it seems to me to be true. Uh, and again, I, I say this is very difficult to imagine in detail, but it seems to me true, and, we, and our, our morality is tacitly predicated on this being true, that if there's something that stands in relation to us, the way we stand in relation to cockroaches, that something's more important than we are, uh, if we are more important than cockroaches. Uh, now, I just own the moral implications of that. I think we are much more important than cockroaches, and importance in this universe, value in this universe, has to scale with the possibilities of experience. Now, if we're wrong about cockroaches, say, if cockroaches have a far richer inner experience than we give them credit for, well, then we should modulate our ethical intuitions for them. If cockroaches suffer in ways that crickets never possibly could, well, then we should be more careful around cockroaches than crickets. And, and so to, it just scales up. with our. I, mean, I think we have some very serviceable intuitions here about how neuronal complexity uh, underwrites uh, the complexity of, of inner life. But I, so it's not, I don't think anything hangs on this concession to the, the possibility of, of the greater importance of, of super beings. I, I don't think that there's any reason to think that they exist. So would you describe yourself as a humanist, Sam? I mean, oh, as yeah. much as the... Yeah. So, I mean, would it not be a part of the humanist... Um, worldview to describe somehow the human as the centre of the moral universe. And yet, you, with your sort of sliding scale up from cockroaches to human to, to these you know, super beings that 
don't exist, but let's pretend they do right. for the sake of this argument. So th these super beings, that as it were, if these super beings existed, then you preferred to defer to them in some moral way, which makes me anxious about your credentials as a humanist. Well, it's, it's the, the anxieties points in both directions. I, 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 because I'm concerned about experience, I, I think that we should be very... Um, mindful of the possible experience of other animals. I'm not, I'm not a speciesist in the sense that you know, only human beings count and we can just eat and kill and experiment and, on anything we like. And so someone like Peter Singer does his cr criticism of eating meat, for instance, which I uh, still eat, though I at one point was a, I was a vegetarian for six years, actually based on an ethical, I, mean, I found it ethically unsustainable. And, and the, honest, the honest truth is I, I, I sort of still do. Um, I don't really have a good defense against a Singerian criticism of what I'm going to eat for dinner. Um, and that's based on, on a sense that it's, there's a tremendous amount of suffering occasioned by this practice, and we should do it much more compassionately than we do if, in fact, it's ethical to do it at all. Uh, and if we discovered that pigs suffer much more than cows, then we should treat pigs differently than cows. And so all of it, is, it has to do with suffering and its mitigation there. Um, but on this planet... Modulo a few concerns about dolphins and chimpanzees and sort of our nearest big-brained cousins. You have to be a humanist to be ethical. I mean, it's just that's there's no there's no sign at all that anything else on this planet is having this richness uh, of experience and can be deprived of so much experience or have or, or be made to to suffer so so much. I'd also like to pick you up on one of the things that you said in your, in your speech about um, Japan and the, the nuclear uh, fallout right. in Japan. One of the things you said, of course, it may be, you said it may, you don't know the consequences of, of these sorts of things, and it may be that in the long run there will be a, a, a positive reaction, this was what you were saying, in right. as much as people are much more careful with nuclear material and so forth like that. Now, could you imagine someone who... Who believed sincerely believed that that was the consequence of a reaction going off? Right. You might believe it, so sets one off, right. and sets one off and calls it moral because its consequences are, as it were, for the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Yeah, now, yeah. I mean, as you know, the problem with utilitarianism is often, or some version of that, that consequentialism, is often that you might get people to do most of us would feel to be pretty awful things yeah, yeah. in the belief that it may have fantastic consequences. Right, right. Well, you bring up two interesting points there. One is just what is the significance of intention? Uh, if you're intending to, if you, if you actually are intending to increase the well-being of people you care about, but you're going about it in such a way as to create immense harm, that's a morally salient fact. If you are intend, if you're quite callous, but kind of inadvertently create immense good, that's also a, a, a very different situation. I mean, intentions matter to us, uh, irrespective of the consequences, and they matter for a reason because they say what, what we condemn in other people is not the sheer fact that they happen to be there when bad things happen, or or that their theirs was the finger that pushed uh, the button that started the chain of events. What we condemn in people are intentions uh, in, the, in, the, in the worst case. And, and that uh, we're right to because what you intend to do after a lot of thought uh, is, says, 
a lot about the global characteristics of your mind. It's, it, says, it says what you're likely to do in the future. So when you, when you interview someone on death row for raping and killing children, and you say, what, what, what are you going to do if we let you out? And he says, well, I'm just going to rape and kill some more children because I love it. I just can't get enough of it. That's precisely the person you, prisons are for. You know? Now, there, there are people in prison who have very different stories, who were drunk and don't remember what happened. Right? And so there, there's different, all those gradations of culpability that track intention that are kind of insensitive to the actual effects in the world, I think, are, are morally relevant. But to, to answer your question directly, the, this, even if creating immense suffering for people would create some, some uh, larger good down the line, even if, if that, even if we knew that that was likely to happen, um, almost certainly that is not the optimal way of creating that larger good. I mean, it would be, yes, it could be that we are going to change our nuclear standards as a result of this tragedy, but it's conceivable that some smart people could get around a table and realize what our nuclear standards should be in the first place without this tragedy. So, so that's clearly a, a much higher place on this landscape that I'm painting for you than, than uh, happening to correct for, for the mayhem caused by our negligence. Um, but there even more interestingly, perhaps, we, we do impose suffering and death and the risk thereof on innocent people all the time based on a kind of cost-benefit analysis. of I mean, How safe do we want our roads to be? You know, we could, it could be that the, the speed limit in London would be three kilometers an hour. You know, that would save uh, all the lives that are lost in traffic accidents. Uh, it would be very difficult to get to the hospital in an emergency, and so you'd be, have people dying in ambulances. But, but there'd be trade-up. But we, it would be this would be a safer place, and yet it would be intolerable. We have we have decided we want to move faster than that at with with, with the certainty that 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 in the, in the United I don't know about here, but something like forty thousand people die every year in, in traffic accidents, uh, and so those decisions have to be made intelligently. I and and and. Uh, when you when you talk about the body count, they, they seem uh, of necessity callous. I mean, is it okay that forty thousand people die every year in, in avoidable traffic accidents in the United States? Well, no. But our nation would come to a standstill if we if we lowered the speed limit to, to five miles an hour. <clears throat> I've never driven a car in my life, so uh, mm. be fine by me. Um, can I just press you on what you just yeah. said there, which is uh, which was something that I didn't pick up from your book. Perhaps I missed it, which because I read you as as, as a fairly sort of orthodox utilitarian with, I mean, quite inspired by people like Bentham, except pleasure was replaced by a, perhaps a bigger notion, which was well-being. Right. But those sorts of <clears throat> utilitarians wouldn't have a place for intention. So that, that right. idea of intention that you just introduced is yeah, something yeah. that utilitarians would not normally uh, give any credence to. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons why I don't, I, haven't, I didn't align my discussion with the usual terms of, that you get in, in a seminar on metaethics because everyone with a, any kind of philosophical background thinks that there are knockdown arguments against utilitarianism or consequentialism um, as presented in a standard form, and I think uh, that those arguments don't apply to the case I'm making. And so, for instance, intention. Our intentions deeply matter because they manifold consequences accrue as a result. I mean, the kinds of intentions you form with respect to other people 
dictate your relationships. They dictate how friendly you are, how peevish you are, how, how, what kind of good counsel you can offer your friends, whether you have friends in the first place. Um, your inner life is colored by your intentions in every moment. And, and so, so, so whether you're happy, whether you, whether you see the good in people versus the bad in people is at some, some level a, ma- a matter of what you intend to pay attention to. I'd quite like to get you an open question, really, a minute, because um, I'd quite like to know what you really think about philosophy, because you can come across as quite dismissive of, of philosophy right. in a great deal of... And, and I know on one level that's because you're writing a, more, a book for a more general audience and, and, and don't want to get bogged down in, you know, sort of petty papers and philosophical disputes and so right. forth. But you might also... There might be people who worry that you're writing a, a, a book of philosophy, mm. but very rarely do you engage with um, you know, that, those philosophical disputes that challenge your position. Right. And, you have yeah. said, and you have said some sort of fairly dismissive things about philosophy, and that slightly worries me because it's something to do with that self-critical vigilance that yeah, I spoke yeah. about before. Yeah, um, yeah well, that's, that's been controversial among philosophers. I, it, there are two reasons. One is I, I, genu- I genuinely think that many of these concepts and... and Threads in the in, in uh, that we've had to follow over the centuries in in, in the discussion of morality, uh, I think they're they're confused and they generate unnecessary confusion. To break to, to start every discussion about moral truth with a discussion of consequentialism on the one hand and deontology on the other and Aristotle's virtue ethics on another, and then then we you know you have to talk about Kant. I mean, one is deadly boring to most people, and two I think it's actually confusing. I think uh, when you look, as normally presented, it, it seems there's a, a stalemate between consequentialism and deontology. I don't think there is. I think deontologists are, are covert consequentialists, even when they say they're not. I mean, the, the only reason why Kant's categorical imperative makes any sense at all is because if it has good consequences, and if it had reliably bad consequences, uh, it would not count as, as an ethical maxim. But not getting involved in that in, in the fight with the philosophers. Well, I have subsequently, okay. well, you, you know, to uh, nobody's pleasure. But, uh, but yeah, I just I I decided to write something that I thought was both true and useful. And one of the criteria of uh, the criterion for being useful would be something that that was readable. And I I just find uh, you know a, a the, the language of metaethics is 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 problematic. It's not that I don't like to read it. I I like to read it. But I did say that the uh, Every use of this terminology increases the amount of boredom in the universe, and that's, that's, got, but you, you, that's you come know, back at me. I mean, you're not you're not ducking a fight with the big boys and girls. Not a, well, not at all. Because I've I've subsequently certainly not, and I'm aware of the literature. I've you know I I have a background in philosophy, and I, and to the consternation of many philosophers, I actually consider myself a philosopher. I mean, I, I my 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 PhD is in neuroscience, but my interest in neuroscience has always been philosophical. I mean, I'm interested in the way in which our scientific understanding of the brain and of, of the world generally will of necessity change our view of ourselves, of our, of our subjectivity and, and of well, what can we I, want. Can, can I ask you a question on that? Because I think some, some people might feel that they don't really want to disagree with much of what you say. They just wonder how far it actually cracks the moral problems that we actually do right. face. Right. One of which, a standard one, is what happens when the well-being of the tribe 
conflicts with right. the well-being of the individual, which it so often does. And um, I, don't, I can't quite see from anything you've written here how what you call science here actually enlightens us on that. And a, a coda to that question is, if tribal well-being is a good, which I assume, or societal well-being yeah, yeah. is a good, which I assume you take it to be, why wouldn't it vary depending upon the circumstances? Face, I mean, hunter-gatherer tribes, for mm -hmm. example, it may be, for the tribal well-being point of view, that actually killing girl children is promotes right, tribal right. well-being, promotes the chances of survival, and promotes... I don't know. It's very easy to yeah, hypothesize, yeah. and it may even be possible to actually specify examples of that. Yeah, Does well, anything yeah, that you yeah, yeah. tell us in your book identify and guide us as to where one should... You know, we're both, we're, we'll take all the well-being stuff as given. We're up, right. We share the thought that well-being is a good basis on which to look at this, but the trouble is it's a pretty commodious category, and most of our moral dilemmas, right. it seems to me, right. tend to be a clash of well-beings rather than what you've presented, which is badness versus goodness. Right. Uh, well, that's a very good question. Uh, one thing I, I, I would want to flag up front is that most of the world hasn't conceded that, it, that our business in the moral sphere is to simply focus on well-being, or at least uh, uh, not to, um, to my can we take, eye. So, can, so, we so, can we take a quick show of hands here? Who would basically go along with the proposition in defiance of most of the world, if Sam is right, that moral well-being is the basis which we, we should be searching for for most human, of our... Human well-being. Of human well-being, yeah. Okay, so, so I'll, I'll tell you why I say that. What do we so, think, 50%? For instance, when you look at the kinds of moral concerns that, that really move the conversation, especially in America, but I'm sure this is true uh, here, like the concerns of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is concerned about gay marriage. They're more concerned about preventing consenting adults who love each other from getting married than the rape of children or than genocide. Uh, they're more concerned about preventing contraception than any of those things, and they'll go preach the sinfulness of contraception in AIDS-ravaged areas in sub-Saharan Africa. So, so if you if, if you have a, if you if well-being is your concern, immediately you see these so-called moral positions as pseudo-moral positions, or in fact immoral positions. And what I'm arguing for is, is just admitting that well-being is the is the cash value of moral terms would change our, our conversation rather markedly. You, the, the Pope would have to say, listen, I'm, I'm against gay marriage because not my faith tells me it's an abomination. He would have to spell out some argument in terms of human well-being. have to say, well, when kids get adopted by these gay couples, they suffer all these ill effects. If you practice, if you, if you have a homosexual relationship, you have all of these psychological ramifications that, that should trouble us and society. And no one, ha no one feels the need to make that argument uh, because you can just make this faith claim. Uh, I, I, but, but I'm not even sure you're right about that. I mean, like it or not, they, Catholic, well, well, the, Catholic, the modern Catholic Church spends an awful lot of time well, trying to make precisely that argument. Well, if, if they make that argument in detail in terms of well-being, then at least they're talking moral talk. Then, then the question is, are they right? Is it plausible that we should be more concerned about condom use than... than uh, the rape of children, or genocide, say, or the spread of AIDS. Now, um, but I would point out to you that that's just where I come from, which is is about as blinkered by religion as the wilds of Afghanistan. 
you have even someone as smart and as apparently secular as, as Barack Obama, when he's asked about gay marriage, he says, well, my faith tells me marriage is between a man and a woman. Full stop. There's no, no burden to have an ethical argument beyond that. Uh, but to answer your question, this, this tension between personal well-being and the well-being of, of the group exists in certain cases. I don't think, I think we oversell it. I think, I think we are so tied to the well-being. We're so deeply social and we're so dependent upon the happiness of others and, and, the, and, the, and the creativity of others and that and the, and, and the others' projects get realized that I think the big moves, the big ethical moves are ones in which all boats rise with the same tide. But yes, there are situations in which we have a zero-sum contest and there's one piece of pie left and you want it and I want it and only one of us is going to get it. Um, and there's one world in which I get it and there's one world in which you get it and those worlds are different but perhaps not different enough to matter in the scheme of things. Um, but I think uh, our lives get increasingly good the more we become sensitive to the ways in which we can get out of zero-sum contests and collaborate with one another so as to, to uh, increase uh, well-being for, for everyone. And that's, that's uh, not an accident. I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, can I just pick you up on this, this uh, very interesting that you just talked about that human beings as social animals, which huh. I completely agree with. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I didn't agree with in your book is, um, is the way in which you, you te- your anthropology, really, um, which is, you know, at the beginning you say, um, morality really questions about the well-being of conscious creatures. Now, we've done the well-being bit, but the conscious creatures bit. And it, mm-hmm. it worried me that... Uh, you define what human being is in this particular, and it seemed to me a rather narrow way, we're just consciousness, as it were. Right. And then in defining it that way, you make life quite easy for yourself as to what the, of, of what right and wrong looks like and how you might measure it. Now, lots of people start in other places when they're defining what it is to be a human being, not just something that could be a brain in a vat, but we are social creatures, language-using creatures, we're people that have bodies that move around the world and interact with people and all this sort of stuff. Right. And so if you start with, I just wanted you to start with a more complex anthropology. I wanted to start with, this isn't about religion, it's just the way in which Shakespeare might describe what it is to be a human being, rich and diverse and right. complicated, and it's that complexity which leads on to an acknowledgement of moral complexity. Now, my anxiety about the book is it started not with human complexity, <coughs> but with a real simplicity consciousness, and then managed to go and make the moral questions very easy because you'd started with, uh, for me, an attenuated view of what it is to be a human being. Right, so right. if you understand, that's my anxiety. So you, you sort of bring in social, as you just did, but actually is that a bit slipping it in, in the back door? Because what you really think, it seems to me, the essence of humanity is, and you say it quite a lot, is consciousness. Well, I think it's, it's the essence of... of there being anything at all to care about and anyone to care. It's just, it's the, either the lights are on or they're not in some sense. And my use of the phrase conscious creatures is not to diminish the color of humanity, it's to extend moral concern to any other creature that could enjoy consciousness to the degree that it can. So if we tomorrow build computers that we have every reason to believe are conscious, all of a sudden we've got ethical uh, 
an ethical connection to them, and we can make them suffer, and we can terrorize them in ways that uh, we, we shouldn't want to do. Um, and it's completely intel- it's an intelligible prospect that we could build a computer that could suffer more than any human being or animal ever could. That would be a bad thing to do, in my, in my, in my view. So consciousness is... But then if you discovered, oh, sorry, we had that wrong, turns out that computer's not conscious, then all the ethical concern goes away. It's just a, a hunk of metal, um, again, on my view. But no, there's no, I'm not diminishing the, the multifariousness of, of uh, human experience. And, and to speak to your, your opening concern, this, the, the idea that science is an ism that is kind of this all... Well, not necessarily an ism, but I, I was more saying your science. Yeah, no, but my science... Can I just, uh, with yeah. respect to the multifariousness, sure. multifariousness of human experience, there it all is. Yeah. And um, so it would, I think we'll interrupt this at least momentarily. It might get back to the... Sure. To, uh, to, to take some... Any questions that, that you might have on the floor here. I'm going to take sort of two or three at a time, and then <coughs> Sam and Giles, if you take them... Starting with this gentleman in the check shirt there, if you would just give us your name and, and grab the mic first, and then we got. Can you hear me? And then that gentleman in the far corner over there. Simple question. Uh, can't hear. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Um, one question: What is the scientifically demonstrable fact that tells me I ought to value human well-being? Well, we'll take that's a big. Biggie, so we'll, we'll, we'll take that one. <laughs> that is a, in, in articulating that concern, uh, as I tried to show in my, in my opening, you have put the bar at a level that no other branch of science can clear. So if you think that a, a science of morality must meet an, an epistemological test, that physics and chemistry and medicine can't meet, then that's a, a double standard that I think is intellectually unjustified and unsustainable. Um, and I see no reason to do that. Uh, in fact, I think the, the value of avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone, which is, the, the again, I think the only assumption I need you to grant for me to have this space of, of, of uh, possible experience open up, is more fundamental than the value of understanding the universe, than the value of being logical. I, mean, it's, I think it's actually, if you're going to give me a choice between knowing a certain fact in physics and plunging into the worst possible misery for everyone, I, I'm going to say, well, yeah, there are certain physical facts we don't, it's rational to not to want to know. Um, and uh, so... Well, I, well, I can't give you. I cannot give you a scientific reason to want to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. Once you once you grant the reasonableness of that, which again I think is even more reasonable than reason itself, uh, then science, a scientific understanding of, of human consciousness, would give you subsidiary values. We could ask the question: Well, how important is compassion? In human life, and how can we best teach children to be compassionate? Uh, that's a, that's a question about cognitive neuroscience. I mean, that's that is that is that is the more you know about the brain basis of compassion and the genes that underwrite uh, a proclivity to it, and the and the and the cultural institutions that 
manufacture it, then you're, then you're talking the game of scientific detail. Again, telling you, you know, if it's a trade-off between compassion and bureaucratic efficiency, how, what's the, how do we balance those two things? Well, there is a right answer. It's fantastically complex, but there is going to be a right answer or a, a, a number of right answers and many, many wrong answers. Are you happy with that? Okay, more questions, please. Okay, we've got one gentleman over there, and then anyone upstairs yet? No. All right, and then behind him, about 20 rows down there. All right. Hi. Um, I would agree with Sam that the, the big moves are, there's obviously some people plain don't agree that well-being is the foundation of um, morality, and that's where this book's been so helpful, but if we were to be able to get everyone to agree that uh, well-being is, is the key here, it, is it possible that there is then space for moral relativism in that someone could just be intending to increase male well-being but failing very badly, but as long as their intentions were good, they are not, you know, you couldn't condemn them morally? Well, actually, I thought you were going to ask something slightly different, which, which seems relevant there. It, it's, it could seem that there's a space of relativism that opens up if you grant that well-being is so multifaceted and we have so many different proclivities that some people just love music so much more than I love music that you know, being a musician is predicated on, their well-being is predicated on that, whereas someone else is really into sports. Say. So how are we ever going to balance music versus sports in this space? Now, um, those are the kinds of, of things that we may never totally sort out. They're, they're clearly answers to I mean, the, the reason why someone likes music. That's a fact about their brain. I mean, that's a, there's there's a. I mean, I'm very unmusical. Um, I it's, I'm aware of not knowing what I'm missing. I mean, I, I have a sense of what I'm missing, and I'm, I sense that it's good. Uh, it's, it would be possible for me to be self-deceived and think, well, everyone's just faking. I mean, they, they just don't really like this stuff. Um, uh, and, and what I'm arguing in my book is that there are many people walking around with that kind of, of, of moral attitude, and they're wrong, and we can say they're wrong. Um, because there really is something to music, and you need a certain genome and brain to appreciate it. Um, the interesting piece is that if you imagine being able to change the human brain, which in at some point is coming, uh, very likely. The question, then you can ask the question, is it good to change the human brain in certain ways? And that standard of goodness has to float free of any one, one individual's sense of what's good. That is, uh, we ha- you have to find a space of right answers beyond what we all happen to agree on. Uh, and that's why I think my moral landscape analogy is useful, because I think there, there are places on this landscape of possible experience which, which are, could be higher than that in terms of well-being than anything we are likely to find. You have to have a certain kind of mind to find those spaces, and we may never know about them. That's an intelligible proposition from my point of view, and that is a, an objective claim about the possible subjective states of conscious creatures. But picking up here, I, I'm not entirely sure that... But, you, but you, that's not relativism. Relativism would be... There's no right an- there's no right answers. It's just but all you have are, are, are mutually different opinions, which you could never one can never really trump another. And there's no truth. But if your intention, I think the questioner was saying, if your intention is to achieve well-being, 
Right. Own, let's take the example of capital punishment, for example. Your intention is to say, listen, let's have capital punishment. It will achieve well-being. There will be less foul murders committed because people will be deterred. And your, your intention, equally to achieve well-being, is saying this is a hideous, barbaric practice inherited right. from our ancestors. It does rather give rise to some Giles Fraserist concerns about who's then... Are we then going to get a scientist, a sort of utilitarian scientist, to come along and adjudicate right, which right. one of these well-being competitors is actually the one that has the higher peak on the landscape? Yeah. Well, it, well there is this Orwellian concern about guys in white lab coats coming forward uh, as the morality police. Uh, I don't understand it, given how we feel about... I mean, we don't feel that about medicine. When, 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 when medicine really has some information to give us, like, guys, you really want to hear this. This thing is going to kill your children. We are desperate for the information. We're not standing back thinking, well, these, this is a little something Orwellian about this, this, the, the, the uncompromising stance of medicine on this subject. Um, and if, 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 if psychology came forward with a really robust and deep understanding of how to raise happier children, what parent isn't going to want to know it? Uh, and that's a, that, that, that immediately intrudes on the space of morality. And I, I just realized that I forgot to answer the core of your very interesting question about what, what do we make of the fact that there are certain contexts in which barbaric actions may be necessary for survival or, or uh, in fact, viewed as morally good. It's something I actually do discuss in my book. If you imagine, I mean, you imagine <coughs> the landscape could be such that you might have to descend in order to reach a higher place. And, and there's a, an economist, a very interesting economist, Samuel Bowles, who's looked at altruism in, in evolutionary landscapes and argued somewhat persuasively that altruism was only possible in evolutionary terms. Uh, it could only have evolved in, in social primates like ourselves in a context of rather incessant outgroup tribal violence. Now, if that's true, let's, let's just stipulate that that's true. And let's stipulate that altruism is one of the most important moral attitudes uh, we're, we're ever going to get and is the thing that was, is going to take us higher on the moral landscape. Well, then, okay, it may have been true that, um, that 500,000 years ago we really did have to descend into some trough of internecine horror in order to climb up towards civilization. I don't know if that's true, but it, 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 it's possible, uh, and that's... Sam, when you talk about music, I'm really interested in just following up on music and your comfort zone. Could you have written a book, or could someone write a book, that's, that the subtitle of which is, Can Science Determine Aesthetic Values? Where science can tell you, uh, objectively, that Bach is better than Beethoven or the Rolling Stones. I mean, if the fact-value distinction goes, then right. presumably that sort of book is also possible. Right, that's an interesting question. It's not something I've thought much about, and, and I think the, the frontier between moral values and aesthetic values is, is genuinely blurry. And I think when, when aesthetic pleasures become significant enough, then whether or not people have them or are deprived of them becomes a moral question. You know, if you, if you don't let people enjoy music, Insofar as music is really valuable, but I wasn't then, doing moral here. I was doing science no, determinism. Right. No, but 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 I'm even granting that it's it's so it's it's sort of of a piece with my argument about morality. Um, clearly, science can understand the neurology of of music, cr- musical creativity, and and appreciation if we can understand the human mind in any mature sense. We don't we don't currently understand it. I'm not saying that, but 
there is, if, if you imagine a time where we make real progress in, in an understanding of the, of the brain, we will be able to, te- we will be able to underst- we will be able to say why Mozart was Mozart, both as a producer of music, uh, and why Mo- the recognition of his genius is something that so many people who, who, who can make these, these discriminations can make. Okay, um, now we're well, running out of time, and I know there's a lot of people want to ask more questions. I had somebody who over there who was going to ask one, and then we'll move to the middle. Um, hi, yeah. Um, the question sort of asked, you know, well-being, I believe, really does matter. Um, it's truly meaningful. It's, it's the highest thing. And Sorry, speak a bit. I can't yeah, speak up what you're and saying. What, what's really being uh, focused on about well-being is happiness. Um, and, and for me, uh, Sam had mentioned something about um, someone who loves raping and murdering kids. And, and for me, the question of like moral well-being is kind of irrelevant. For, for me, it's simply that um, if, if you hear about someone, whether it's real or not, who's, you know, you've heard that they've raped and murdered kids, your feeling will either be, say, in the positive or neutral in the negative. Mm-hmm. And it, it can't be any other one. And for me, if it's in the positive to hear about someone, you know, doing something so terrible and cruel to someone else, that to me is not something morally wrong or right. It's simply something that I find quite ugly. Um, it's not morally wrong or right to have that. Yeah, yeah. I, for, for me, I, I, I don't try and all of a sudden try to like morally define it. I, I simply right. go on my feelings. Right. My feelings that's react. Morally wrong. What do you then find <laughs> worth moral comment? Um, I suppose trying to find a, a feeling that somehow can direct you better. Towards, if you want to put it, a moral landscape, uh, than than happiness and and passion uh, at the, at the height of you know a preferential feeling like to, to to love, whether it be like music or or something totally. Okay, true. well, thanks very much. We're going to okay. take two or three questions in in groups now because we're going to we're going to get get through quite a lot. Gentleman, the white shirt in the middle there, and then Sam, if you and Giles, if you will then respond. Pick up a clutch of questions because we're running out of time. Can you hear me? Uh, Sam, thanks for being here. Um, Just touching on something you said in the previous debate and uh, something you picked up on today. A bit louder, Uh, if you will. Okay. You said that uh, you don't think that a computer will ever be able to, a supercomputer will ever be able to be consulted about moral questions. Now, we're at the limits of our own intuitions about what we can logically discern about the world, but supposing we were to construct a computer that is much more advanced than ourselves. Uh, could it not just simply have the processing power and parallelism programmed into it to solve all the questions we find so intuitively uh, obviating and uh, confusing? Yeah. Oh, in principle, yes. I, I don't for a moment doubt that we could uh, engineer our better judgment into a computer, an intelligent computer that then could improve upon it. I mean, it just, it could, it could just, it could remi- so much of our of our, so many of our moral failures are the result of self-deception born of just not paying attention to everything or forgetting morally salient details in a self-serving way. And we could, we could create a system that made that impossible. Now the question is, is that a, is that a good thing or not? It, it's good based on what the consequences. Maybe there's certain kinds of self-deception that, that actually are important in terms of safeguarding well-being. I, mean, I happen to be, for the most part, uh, Against self-deception, uh, but it's it's um, 
no, I, I don't see any, any reason why a computer couldn't be wiser than we are. It just it doesn't seem realistic in any reasonable time frame. There's a, there's a very uh, uh, influential uh, philosophical thought experiment that's now been taken into the psychology labs and tested, and it's really the kind of the, the, the benchmark moral reasoning test at this moment. Um, you're asked to imagine a trolley coming down the track, a runaway trolley coming down the tracks. There are five workmen working on the tracks that will be killed if you do nothing, but you stand at a switch, and you can divert the trolley onto another track where there's only one workman who will be killed if you divert it. When you ask people whether they should do this, something like 90, 95% of people say, yes, you, you, you have to throw that switch. In fact, you'd be a moral monster not to throw the switch. You're, you're saving a net four lives. But if you pose the problem in terms of you're now standing on a footbridge over the track, and you can, you, there's a suitably large person beside you, and you can push him onto the track, into the path of the oncoming Charlie, killing him, obviously, but saving the five, it seems actuarially the same scenario, and yet now 90, 95% of people say you would be a monster to push that man. Now, the morally salient difference, obviously, is the up-close-and-personal pushing of a person's body. People imagine touching a person. People imagine his resistance, etc., as opposed to the impersonal act of, of flipping a switch. Now, the first thing to say is, I think the, the question is somewhat ill-posed. We have an intuitive physics, and many of us have burned a lot of fuel when hearing the problem, wondering whether the fat man is really going to stop the trolley. Uh, but even if you, even if you design a, a scenario where that disappears, um, what you're left with is this sense that uh, the situations aren't actually identical, because it just may be that pushing someone up close and personal affects you uh, in a way that flipping a switch doesn't, and there's no way to correct for that effect, say. Um, and the, the, the converse of this is, is actually hugely consequential in the way we wage war. I mean, we now wage war in such a way as it's all just flipping switches. You know, you can be thousands of miles away from the people you're annihilating, and that allows us to do things which we probably couldn't do up close and personal, or it would take a different kind of person to do it. And, and this is an example I use, if not in that book, in one of my books. I, when you hear that your grandfather flew bombing missions over Dresden, that's one thing. When you hear that your grandfather killed a woman and her five children with a shovel, that's a very different understanding of your grandfather. And yet he probably killed more women and children Shit. flying bombing mis- missions. But we have a sense that it would take a different person to do that. The experience of having done it would be different. Um, and all of that's relevant. I mean, all of that falls into the consequential calculus, and, that, and this is why consequentialism is normally posed in terms of body count doesn't capture what I mean by um, the moral landscape. Well, listen, on that fascinating note, we've now reached 8.30. I see that people are beginning to feel they need to go, and you're not going to have time to buy Sam's book if I don't okay. stop it now. Those of you who have to go now, you can always get it also at your local bookshop or download it or from Amazon if you're on Kindle or just buy it through Amazon. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this evening. Can we have a very big hand for both of us? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.